welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover Two Resources. We've been producing our podcast series about the people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic for almost five years now. Our library includes 276 episodes on all aspects of the opioid crisis. Beginning with today's episode, we'll pivot and look at the opioid epidemic through the lens of the global pandemic. Until recently, our most feared threat was nuclear war. No one had preparing for a global pandemic on the radar screen. Well, almost no one. We begin with a portion of a TED Talk on the threat of a global pandemic that was delivered five years ago by Bill Gates. When I was a kid, the disaster we worried about most was a nuclear war. That's why we had a barrel like this down in our basement filled with cans of food and water. When the nuclear attack came, we were supposed to go downstairs, hunker down, and eat out of that barrel. (laughs) Today, the greatest risk of global catastrophe doesn't look like this. Instead, it looks like this. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. Now, part of the reason for this is that we've invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence. But we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. Let's look at Ebola. I'm sure all of you read about it in the newspaper. Uh, Lots of tough challenges. I followed it uh, carefully through the uh, case analysis tools we use to track polio eradication. And as you look at what went on, the problem wasn't that there was a system that didn't work well enough. The problem was that we didn't have a system at all. In fact, there are some pretty obvious uh, key missing pieces. We didn't have a group of epidemiologists ready to go who would have gone, seen what the disease was, see how far it had spread. Uh, The case reports came in on paper. Uh, It was very delayed before they were put online, and they were extremely inaccurate. We didn't have a medical team ready to go. We didn't have a way of preparing people. Now, Medicine Sans Frontiers did a great job orchestrating volunteers, but even so, we were far slower than we should have been getting the thousands of workers into these countries. And a large epidemic would require us to have hundreds of thousands of workers. There was no one there to look at treatment approaches, uh, no one to look at the diagnostics, no one to, to figure out what tools should be used. As an example, uh, we could have taken the blood of survivors, processed it, 
and put that plasma back in people to protect them. Uh, but that was never tried. So there was a lot that was missing, and these things are really a global failure. The WHO is funded to monitor epidemics, but not to do these things I talked about. Now, in the movies, it's quite different. There's a group of handsome epidemiologists <laughs> ready to go. They move in, they save the day, but that's just pure Hollywood. The failure to prepare could allow the next epidemic to be dramatically more devastating than Ebola. Let's look at the progression of Ebola over this year. About 10,000 people died, and nearly all were in the three West African countries. There's three reasons why it didn't spread more. The first is there was a lot of heroic work by the health workers. They found the people and they prevented more infections. The second is the nature of the virus. Ebola does not spread through the air. And by the time you're contagious, most people are so sick that they're bedridden. Third, it didn't get into many urban areas, and that was just luck.、Uh, if it had gotten into a lot more urban areas,、uh, the case numbers would have been much larger. So next time, we might not be so lucky.、Uh, you can have a virus where people feel well enough while they're infectious that they get on a plane or they go to a market. The source of the virus could be a natural epidemic like Ebola, or it could be bioterrorism. And so there are things that would literally make things a thousand times worse. In fact, let's look at a model of a virus、uh, spread through the air、uh, like the Spanish flu、uh, back in 1918. So here's what would happen: it would spread throughout the world very, very quickly. And you can see there's over 30 million people die from that epidemic. So this is a serious problem. We should be concerned. But in fact, we can build a really good response system. We have the benefits of all the science and technology that we talk about here. We've got cell phones to get information from the public and get information out to them. We have satellite maps where we can see where people are and where they're moving. We have advances in biology that should dramatically change the turnaround time to look at a pathogen and be able to make drugs and vaccines. That fit for that、uh, pathogen. So we can have tools, but those tools need to be put into an overall global health system, and we need preparedness. The best lessons, I think, on how to get prepared are again what we do for war. For soldiers, we have full time、uh, waiting to go. We have reserves that can scale us up to large numbers. A NATO has a mobile unit that can deploy very rapidly. NATO does a lot of war games to check: Are people well trained? Do they understand about fuel and logistics and the same radio frequencies? So they are absolutely ready to go. So those are the kinds of things we need to deal with an epidemic.、Uh, what are the key pieces?、Uh, first, is we need strong health systems in poor countries.、Uh, that's where、uh, mothers can give birth safely, kids can get all their vaccines. But also, where we'll see the outbreak very early on, we need a medical reserve corps. Lots of people who've got the training and background who are ready to go with the expertise. And then we need to pair those medical people with the military. 
taking advantage of the military's ability to move fast, do logistics, and secure areas. We need to do simulations, germ games, not war games, so that we see where the holes are. The last time a germ game was done in the United States was back in 2001, and it didn't go so well. So far, the score is germs one, people zero. Finally, we need lots of advanced R&D in areas of vaccines and diagnostics. There are some big breakthroughs, like adeno-associated virus, that could work very, very quickly. Now, I don't have an exact budget for what this would cost, but I'm quite sure it's very modest compared to the potential harm. The World Bank estimates that if we have a worldwide flu epidemic, global wealth will go down by over three trillion dollars. And we'd have millions and millions of deaths. These investments offer significant benefits beyond just being ready for the epidemic.、Uh, the primary health care, the R&D, those things would reduce global health equity and make、uh, the world more just as well as more safe. So I think this should absolutely be a priority. There's no need to panic. We don't have to hoard cans of spaghetti or go down into the basement, but we need to get going. Because time is not on our side. According to an article which ran in Stat last week, COVID-19 will worsen the opioid overdose crisis if we don't prepare now. The article goes on to say, missing from the national discussion on the coronavirus has been another vulnerable group: patients with opioid use disorder. Despite ongoing public health efforts, the opioid overdose crisis doesn't appear to be slowing down. And the emergence of COVID-19 could worsen it if we don't preemptively develop and implement response plans now. As we know all too well today, social isolation is a key measure for preventing individuals from getting infected and to curbing the spread to others. Many patients that are taking medications to treat opioid use disorder, such as methadone or buprenorphine. Aren't able to stay home because of government regulations that limit how these medications are prescribed and dispensed. But that may be changing. Here to talk about the COVID-19 threat for those in treatment for substance use disorder and what's being done about it is Dr. Rick Massetti, the State Opioid Treatment Authority at the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. He currently oversees the federally licensed opioid treatment programs. So, Rick, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So, persons with opioid use disorder have access to a couple of med- medications to recover:、uh, methadone, which is the gold standard standard for treatment of opioid use disorder, and buprenorphine.、Um, however, persons on methadone have to go in and take that medication typically on a daily basis. That is, that they have to、uh, typically line up at a facility、uh, during the first 90 days of treatment, and they have to take medication in front. Of a nurse practitioner or physician、um, to ensure that they take the medication and don't divert the medication、um, to other persons.、Um, they do this、um, every day of the week except Sundays. And、um, in the case with coronavirus 19, that means that they're going to be、um, kind of lining up with many other people in a common location and where they could potentially become exposed to the coronavirus just by standing in line. So what we've done at the state is to try to understand what we can do and what the feds are willing to let happen to give patients extra take-home medication 
Dr. Massetti talks about the qualification process for the program. Well, the first thing that needs to happen is that each clinic that wants to participate in this program needs to come up with a plan for combating coronavirus-19. Um, and that includes aspects like um, how are we going to decrease the number of touch points in the facility for patients and staff? How are we going to clean the entire facility for patients and staff? And a part of that plan is also based on um, the exception request system. And in our, in our state, what we're doing is we're allowing you know, anybody with COVID-19 or symptoms of COVID-19 to have uh, 14 days worth of take-homes. Um, and that's kind of regardless of, you know, what persons might be testing positive for during their urine drug screens. Uh, we do that because we understand that there's a great risk there um, for exposure to other patients and staff. And we don't want um, anybody to develop COVID-19. And we certainly don't want facilities to end up shutting down because of COVID-19, because there are hundreds and in some cases, you know, thousands of patients that rely on these facilities uh, for each facility. Uh, so to lose any one of them would be a great blow to the community. Um, we also allow exceptions for persons who have uh, comorbid medical conditions. This could be something like uh, COPD, uh, HIV, uh, cancer, uh, any condition which has an immunosuppression factor to it. Um, and in all these cases, patients can receive um, between 7 and 14 days of take-home doses for that other category. Now, additionally, we have... Um, uh, the possibility for patients to come every other day, depending on their level of stability. So we recognize that in our state, you know, we have patients who are largely testing positive for fentanyl, and fentanyl is responsible for an incredible number of deaths in our state. We want to be responsible, and you know, at the same time, we're we're removing people from the clinic who um, have certain conditions and have uh, COVID-19 or suspected to have COVID-19. We still want to take the opportunity to be responsible for the patients who are there, you know, trying to recover and whatnot, with understanding that, um, you know, the disease process is difficult at times. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be stable 100% of the time, and they will need, you know, daily check-ins or every other day check-ins. But even in these cases, um, at times we allow exceptions where there are, you know, take-homes, maybe three take-homes a week, um, um, whatnot for patients. Uh, additionally, we're coming out with new requirements just today that say that organizations who, uh, who want and actually uh, give stable patients uh, take-home doses as well. We're advancing everybody uh, several phases. So phase one and phase two are essentially advanced to um, phase three and four. Phase three and four are essentially advanced to phase five. So again, this is just a decreased number of people within the clinic uh, to make sure that the spread of COVID-19 is, uh, is less and less uh, within the clinic and outside of the clinic. We want to be flexible for those patients, and we want to be flexible for uh, the clinics in general. You know, we recognize that we can provide general guidance at the state level, but it is really ultimately up to that patient and that practitioner who see each other on a regular basis. Uh, you know, some of those patients are going to be really um, um, able to be stable and have a large number of take-homes right now, even though they wouldn't normally qualify for it, and others aren't. You know, they might be a high risk for either medication diversion or just, you know, abuse of their medication. Um, so we have to be really careful. We have to understand that, you know, addiction is a disease and we have to treat it as such. Um, but we really do rely on those frontline practitioners to make those best decisions um, uh, in line with our general guidance. Um, during this kind of chaotic time, we recognize that, 
there's a lot of uncharted territory here. So one of the things that we're doing right now in our, in our new guidance document is requiring uh, one to two teletouch points uh, per week for anybody receiving take-home exceptions. And we're able to do that in this state in particular because our governor, through executive action, changed some of our statute, which would uh, which has allowed uh, Ohio Moss, uh, my organization, Mental Health and Addiction Services, and the Ohio Department of Medicaid to revise our administrative code very quickly and provide those additional um, telehealth guidance policies for 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 um, for our state. Uh, so we're really really excited about that right now. Um, and there's a way to bill for these services and provide these services uh, quickly and efficiently. And we're trying to come up with guidance um, right now internally as well to teach people how to do this on the front line. So it can be done easily. But it's something that can be done and billed over any landline phone, a mobile phone. It doesn't have to be video, video enabled at all. Um, so it's just an exciting time for us as we move forward. And uh, also, we want to make sure to do these things um, in a responsible fashion. So we're trying to put down the guidelines. Uh, as, as best we can in a quick time frame. There are some barriers to introducing telehealth services that Dr. Massetti addresses. Uh, that is something that we are inquiring about now. Um, I know some of our organizations, especially a larger one, have um, you know, all the standard equipment that you need. For example, they, they, have, a, they have a phone. Um, uh, now, not all the organizations have uh, a video capacity. And that is something that we, re- that we recognize is going to be difficult, not just for our opioid treatment programs, but then also for all the um, other healthcare programs all across Ohio and the United States, as we all try to get that technology at the exact same time. There's just going to be a lot of uh, demand there um, that can't be satisfied that quickly. I'm sure some of the orders we pushed out um, many weeks. Um, but during this time, you know, we're committed to working with our field understand, uh, you know, what we can do to encourage these telehealth uh, practices and policies to be successful. And, uh, you know, as I said, that's one reason that we allowed, you know, telehealth uh, sessions to occur and be billed through uh, landlines or mobile devices. Next, we talk about how to initiate take-home service. So in a lot of cases, um, what's happening is the programs themselves are kind of, um, looking at their patients and dividing up their patients into which category, exception category they fit. Um, this is due to my guidance to say, hey, in your organizations, please, you know, uh, aggressively utilize these exceptions with your patients. You know, don't hold back. Uh, if somebody um, is currently eligible for 14 take-homes, then definitely already give that to them. Don't make them come in every single day. Um, but the organizations themselves right now are, are dividing up patients into the different categories submitting these plans, and they should be following through with those plans. Um, if patients do have a hard time um, getting take-homes, if they think they would be eligible for take-homes according to my guidance, then you know they can always certainly uh, um, call me or one of the staff at our organization, and we can work with that organization to uh, ensure that those patients get those take-homes they need. Um, a lot of organizations have clients rights officers, so you know those patients may want to speak to them as well if they think they could Uh, qualify for uh, an exception that they are receiving at the moment. On March 16th, SAMHSA issued an order enabling opioid treatment providers to dispense up to 28 days of take-home doses of patient treatment. You know, our state has talked about that. Um, I know I've spoken about that with uh, governor staff and with our medical director, with other high-level staff in our organization and outside our organization. 
Um, at this time, I don't think we're going to be moving forward with the 28-day take-homes only because our state has been hit hard by fentanyl in a way that, frankly, no other state has. You know, we have more fentanyl-related deaths than, um, than, than any other state. And the, the persons um, um, who are granted access to large amounts of medication, you know, they're at risk for relapse uh, themselves. And it would be difficult to, you know, have them have 28 days of meds and then, you know, uh, be in this relapse situation where maybe they, maybe they're taking a lot of medication of meds done at one time. Maybe they're diverting it for, for heroin or fentanyl or other products, but um, it just puts us in a, in a real bind um, in some cases because our, our state just is a little bit different than many other states uh, across the nation. So the purpose of these schedules is really to divide up the patient population and make you know as few patients in the facility at any one time. So for example, if I have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday take-home schedule, um, then I'm going to come in on Monday and take the dose in front of a nurse and they get a take-home for Tuesday. I'll come on Wednesday, take a dose in front of a nurse, get a take-home for Thursday. And at the same time, this is going on with half the population. The other half of the population in the clinic is coming in on uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays and then getting um, every other day take-homes that way. So you know, here again, the goal is to really reduce the potential spread for COVID-19. Um, and we recognize that it really is easily transmissible, even um, or especially because patients can be uh, um, infectious five days before they show any symptoms. And we wanna make sure that um, everybody's kept safe in the situation and we try to you know, decrease the amount of transmission as much as possible. I asked Dr. Massetti to explain the difference between individual versus blanket requests. Well, we have individual requests, uh, like talking about where we might have a person, um, you know, who, who is testing positive for fentanyl. However, they also have some sort of immunosuppression due to HIV, or maybe they have uh, COPD, some sort of condition where they would be at increased risk of death if they ever got COVID-19. So those uh, exceptions, um, you know, I make on a case-by-case basis, and I've, I've approved many of them. And my main point or my main goal in this process is that the medical directors have a lot of good um, policies and procedures to, you know, connect with that patient. Um, again, we recognize that relapse is a real thing, and these people are people who are typically actively using. Um, so we want to make sure that, uh, you know, medical directors or their staff reach out to them in these difficult times. And I just want to plan for that to be a part of this process. So that's what medical directors typically do. They submit a plan for each of those patients in those unique cases. Now for the uh, blanket exceptions, what you're talking about is, you know, um, let's say a, a exception for all patients with COVID-19. So all patients with COVID-19 and get up to 14 days take home. In that case, you know, they're just creating a, a general uh, process or policy or procedure um, that documents, you know, how they'll, be, how they'll be interacting with these patients. Um, over time. Treatment providers can do a few things to prepare for COVID-19. Um, you know, I think the most important thing we've, we have to talk about is thinking about, um, you know, what's going to happen if our staff becomes infected with COVID-19. Um, in some cases, that will mean that the organization shuts down because the staff is just um, so small an organization, right? If you only have a very small leadership team and a few counselors, if you if you're counselors, there's no way for that organization to function. 
So really come up with coming up with a, a plan for organizations um, to interface with local community members and other organizations in case their organization shuts down. So let's say the worst case scenario is, you know, my two staff leave, my organization has to shut down. You know, what am I going to do with my patients? There should be some plan and process that's in place, a disaster plan that would help you to uh, transfer those patients to another organization where they can receive care while your organization is temporarily shut down. Um, obviously, you know, thinking about things like uh, um, facility cleanliness is something that organizations need to think about immediately, wiping down all services, all touch points. I know I've had one organization talk about um, even removing doors between the different rooms because um, the organization was afraid that staff or patients would touch those doors and just the that door there would be a temptation for somebody to touch it. So, you know, thinking about what they can do to reduce transmission internally as well. It has changed so much. I mean, you know, even a month ago, if anybody would have said, you'll be modifying your methadone policies uh, to give additional take home. I mean, you would have been laughed out of the room. Nobody would have thought that would have ever been possible. But, you know, we know it is possible and we've seen what, what a crisis can really do. And we've also seen how people can rise uh, up to a crisis to face it in this uh, desperate situation. Um, and people in, in my field and all over the United States and Ohio are definitely dedicated toward um, really addressing this uh, head on and, and taking charge of leadership in this effort to make sure that uh, um, our patients and the staff are safe. Next, we talk about the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the opioid epidemic. I think it's probably too early to say. Um, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you what's going on in Washington state. So the illegal drug supply is currently um, drying up out there. And I would anticipate it to do the same here. Um, it is driving people who are, who are actively using drugs to treatment centers because they are going through withdrawal. And so if that is something that is also replicated here, then what we have happening is a lot more people entering treatment, which is a good thing. The illicit drug supply has begun to dry up in our country and around the globe. According to a treatment provider in Ottawa, Canada, in these early days of the coronavirus outbreak, the supply of fentanyl in particular appears to have dried up, possibly due to self-isolation practices in drug-producing countries. That leaves open the possibility of people's tolerance level dropping significantly and a high vulnerability to overdose when the drug supply and usage habits return to normal. I'm not sure why the illicit drug supply is drying up, um, but that is the report from um, from um, the, the Washington State uh, State Opioid Treatment Authority. And uh, according to their law enforcement, um, you know, I don't know if that's related to the movement of goods across the uh, U.S.-Mexico border or just that uh, even drug dealers themselves are, are being more cautious about uh, uh, contacting other people. You know, <laughs> I don't know why. I think one of the other impacts it'll have long-term is we're really going to think about um, what treatment looks like in our state and across the nation. We have expanded our telehealth capabilities to administrative code um, dramatically, both for Medicaid and through mental health addiction services. I imagine that is going to be a greater bulwark of treatment from now on as we move forward throughout the state and throughout the country, uh, even after the epidemic. Um, 
you know, goes away. And I think as facilities, you know, really utilize that and get skilled at that, um, they're going to understand that it can be a successful business model and that people can get um, really good treatment through that model. But I think that'll be a permanent change. Um, I also think that people will probably uh, consider rethinking the take-home schedules for persons with methadone. Um, you know, there will be a lot of, of uh, probably great research conducted after the pandemic is, is abated, whereby we can go back and understand, um, you know, what the different take-home schedules really did for the patient population. And we'll probably see that there's um, some adjustments that we can make to that to allow more take-homes for persons with opioid use disorder. Like I said, we are dedicated to uh, working to uh, solve the epidemic and, and make sure that everybody gets the best care as possible during this process. My guest today has been Dr. Rick Massetti, the State Opioid Treatment Authority at the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Dr. Massetti shared the COVID-19 and opioid treatment guidance for the field, which has evolved rapidly as of late. It's hoped the changes to policy, including their new take-home medication guidelines that they developed, will reduce the number of overdose victims as the coronavirus pandemic evolves. To learn more about this program and the guidelines, go to cover2.org. That's cover and the number 2.org. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 